and welcome to shoot that's how <laughs> keep it we're keeping it hello vox podcast we are keeping this hello vox podcast this is why i can't be in charge of the intro we're we are we're a bit of a mess today um anyway welcome to the show mike bonnie and tim here and we want to we you know usually we do a hair update but today we need a a kind of a kind of a sleep update because tim i gotta tell you tim's looking the word the word that comes to mind today is haggard you know what's funny too is i just thought about that when we were talking as a very short preface to this episode about um allegiance pledging allegiance but there's a song about I pledge allegiance to the hag. <laughs> and it's a whole song about pledging your allegiance to Merle Haggard. For all you Eric Church fans out there. Okay, so so yeah, so four of four of you will get that get that reference probably. Um but you're my people. But yes, yes. So Timothy, what um what's going on? Well, the last couple of days here in Northern California have been in the high 90s. So it's been very hot, and it was at a really abrupt turn, so it was kind of disorienting. And then uh, all, everything it was, it was so rainy that everything's blooming, and my allergies have been popping. And I have not been sleeping well at all in general, so I found it was a good excuse to take a bunch of Benadryl. But I definitely woke up with a wet washcloth on my brain yeah. today. Yeah, the Benadryl hangover says, is real. Yeah. It's real. Bonnie, how, how about you? How was your sleep last night? You know what? My sleep was too short, but that was my own fault because oh. I made myself stay up until the new episode of the show I've been watching came live. Oh, and it man. was the season finale, and I could not miss it. So I was up till one thirty watching it. But it's uh, on Apple TV. It's called Defending Jacob. Is that Chris Evans? Evans? That was Captain America. Yes, and I it was so funny because. <laughs> I obviously have no I I mean I couldn't have made that connection yeah. if my life depended on it. But I was watching the show and my husband I love watching like true crime and like shows like I'm always watching weird shows about like murders and stuff and he mm. can't stand it. He's like I'm not watching those. So I paused the show. I'm like, "Sai, look at this guy." And Sai's so like, "Oh, who that guy?" And it was Chris Evans, but I didn't know. I was like, "Yeah, see the thing about him is he sort of looks like Ben Affleck, but he's actually pretty good at acting. This guy is. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, that's Chris Evans. I'm like, I don't, yeah. that means nothing to me. Yeah. So yes, Chris Evans is in it and it was a cliffhanger and it nice. ended. I would like to guess the endings and I'm usually mm. right. And I was not right about this one. Dang. Yeah. Speaking of, of good movies watched at home, um, Tim, can you give us a Scoob update? <laughs> uh, yeah, my children, the other night, we watched a movie while we ate dinner, and they picked the new Scooby-Doo movie yeah. that is just called Scoob. <laughs> uh, and it's wild. I mean, there's it's wild superheroes and aliens yes. and Egyptian gods. Yes. And, I cannot uh, stand that kind of stuff. Yes. Even if it wasn't and... Scooby, oh, I'm I sorry. I'm it. sorry there wasn't murder. You know and what? At the beginning, they frame it. They frame it where Shaggy, 
they frame it through where Shaggy meets Scooby when they're when he's a kid, and Shaggy oh. has no friends, and it's really the, kind of emotional. The and origin then, story. Yeah, and they meet each other, the and they origin become like story. I think that's a very very liberal framing. Oh, they, of that. they fill a void for each other. It tugs at the heartstrings just they a little bit, a and then void. you're like, oh, you guys are too Shaggy, far in. Man. You're too Shaggy, far in. Shaggy was and nothing. Shaggy is Will Forte, who is just a genius. Oh, genius. You guys are too far in. Well, um, anyway. That... <laughs> you said, I'm sorry, there wasn't any murder. <laughs> <laughs> evidently, evidently. That's... I mean, there's a lot of crime. It's just always uh, Mr. Carruthers. Or... Yeah, yeah, some property theft, perhaps, maybe. Uh, <laughs> maybe some larceny. Um, all right, so today... Uh, we have a conversation that um, really fits into a broader conversation that a bunch of us theology nerds have been having uh, around what what exactly is the gospel? And the gospel is the shorthand for what's the core message of Jesus? Um, I, I was raised, and I think I speak for all of us, um, on this side of the mic, you know, I, I was raised to believe that the gospel was that Jesus came and Jesus died for my sins. And that if I put my faith and trust in him, um, that my, that he would exchange his righteousness for my sinfulness. So he took my sin on the cross. I got his righteousness as a gift. And now God sees me as he sees Jesus. And therefore I go to heaven when I die and face judgment. And that was, the message of Jesus was something called justification by faith. And um, this is a heritage uh, from, you know, 500 years of, of Reformation theology. And uh, there are some scholars who are saying, well, I, the, the message includes that, but it's bigger. Hmm. And so their shorthand phrase for their bigger gospel is called the King Jesus gospel, that Jesus is becoming king. That includes forgiveness, but it includes a whole lot more, not traditionally labeled under the banner gospel. So you have the King Jesus folks, and then you have some uh, reformed folks that are going back and forth over, well, what's the real message of Jesus? And we've got one of those King Jesus folks with us today, a guy by the name of Matthew Bates who wrote a book called um, Gospel Allegiance. And um, previous, I discovered him, he wrote a book a couple of years ago called Salvation by Allegiance Alone. And he really seeks to, to provide clarity on what Paul means when Paul uses four big words in Ephesians 2, when it says, for it is by grace we have been saved through faith. And this not by works. And so what does it mean? What does grace mean? What does faith mean? What does saved mean? What do works mean? And um, it's pretty heady stuff. Bonnie, what did you think when you heard it? Yeah, I really liked it. Um, I thought he did a, a really good job. I, I was a little bit, I'll be honest. I, I wasn't on the interview because my fridge broke that day. So we were trying to buy a fridge in the pandemic, which was weird. But um, yes, so I, just, so I listened to it and um, I was a little nervous because I, just the association with some of the Gospel Coalition people, I thought he would be kind of um, abrasive, mm. but he wasn't at all. He was very welcoming, very unarming. Um, I really liked what he had to say. I liked that he reframed what the gospel meant in terms of this totality language, the whole Christ event. Um, I thought that was really cool, but it, I think it does take some work. So one of the things he talks about is that 
when we hear a word or a phrase, what's happening in our, I can't remember the uh, name of it that he called mm-hmm. it. And I think you would probably remember it if I explained it better. <laughs> but um, <laughs> when you have a word or a phrase and um, your brain is like simultaneously thinking of six different definitions mm. when you come to the table. So that's kind of what happened to me as I was listening to it. So I'm mm. hearing him and then I'm literally hearing the words he's saying and the definitions he's giving from like six different walks of my faith or chapters or different things. So it takes a little bit of work to pull it apart to see exactly yeah. what he is saying and separate it out from yeah. things that you've heard forever. Yes. And, and to clarify, he's not part of the gospel coalition. They, they, are, dis- they are disagreeing with him very fervently. Because it's a really correct, it's a it's very much correction to the narrow, kind of reformed view of justification by faith alone. I guess I assume that somebody that would disagree with them would also have to be abrasive. Ah, <laughs> that oh, makes that makes sense. sense. Yes, that's what yes, I thought yes, was yes, happening. Yes, yes. Yeah. Oh, okay, got it, got it, yeah. got it. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. There are actually nice theology people out there. Yeah, uh, <laughs> but it's it's still it's still shocking when you find them. Um, yeah. So, so this is this is pretty heady. This is theology geek. We tr- we do our best um, to try to define everything and and move kind of slowly, but it's still um, it's still some heady stuff. So anyway, I I think you'll I think you'll like it. But just you know, be forewarned. There's some there's some um, there's some theology language in here that for me was totally invigorating, which means. Like Eric Church, it will be invigorating for exactly four other people. Um, <laughs> all right, so Tim, any last thoughts? You were there. Nope. <laughs> all right, ladies Better, and gentlemen, um, enjoy our convo. He's a great guy, and uh, we had a lot of fun chewing on some geeky stuff. everybody, Tim and I are with Dr. Matthew Bates, who uh, Bonnie couldn't be with us. She Her fridge broke today, so we're missing her voice. Uh, but Dr. Bates is an assistant professor of theology at Quincy University. And um, he wrote a book a couple of years ago called Salvation by Allegiance Alone. Rethinking Faith Works in the Gospel of Jesus the King. So I automatically picked it up. And it's a really, really good book. And then um, just last September, he wrote uh, a new one called Gospel Allegiance, which is a little more popular, would you say? Like aimed more towards a popular audience? Yeah, they're, they're pitched about the same, but I would say Gospel Allegiance was a little more carefully vetted for a popular audience uh, by the press. So oh. yeah, um, it's, it's a little bit, um, yeah, it, it kind of takes the core of Salvation by Allegiance alone, like a little more sprawling book yeah. and uh, Gospel Allegiance kind of pairs that down to like really some of the core issues and works those out more deeply, um, but in language that, yeah, hopefully would be accessible to any educated person. It, and, and it absolutely, absolutely is, but, but it's caused... Um, <laughs> we just had a conversation offline about uh, Matt has seven kids, and God bless him in his quarantine state. Um, but um, I don't know why I brought that up. I just I, I'm I'm forgetting what we've already said and not said uh, that is recorded or not. So Matt has seven kids. That that should qualify him for some sort of award. 
But in your latest book, um, one of the things that you do that I find really, really interesting is to talk about the ways in which people like John Piper and um, John MacArthur and R.C. Sproul and Matt Chandler and Greg Gilbert and, and you know, pretty, those are pretty huge names have um, kind of uh, misframed the gospel uh, or misunderstood at least its center. Tell us a little bit about, about what that thesis is um, and how you think we've missed it in some ways. Yeah, thanks, Mike. Um, so, yeah, these are obviously um, all people I admire. They're all um, gospel stalwarts, right? They've given their lives to serve um, the church, and um, I respect them very much um, in that capacity, very sincerely. Um, but at the same time, these are not infallible teachers, and I do think that there has been um, a slight misframing of the gospel or a, a misconstrual of its center. I like the way you put that. Um, and what I want to say with regard to that is that it's not that these people have gotten the gospel entirely wrong. Obviously, that would be absurd. Um, but that the scripture, as we pay very careful attention to it, has a slightly different center than what they've been mm. asserting is the center. Mm. Um, and what what traditionally has been put forward as the center of the gospel or the heart of the gospel or the linchpin of the gospel by, by these different um, um, pastor scholars is that justification by faith is the heart of the gospel. And so justification language has to do with our innocence before God and um, that we, we become right before God. Um, we are declared right be uh, before God by faith um, and by faith alone. That's the traditional Protestant position. I'm a yeah. Protestant. Um, but the, the way in which that's been constructed as the center seems to be ignoring some important things in Scripture. So, so the way I heard the, the message of Jesus uh, and probably the way I've, I've spoken of it is the classic, God is holy, I have sinned, uh, my sins are enough to damn me to hell. Uh, Jesus has come uh, to sacrifice himself in my place so that if I trust him with faith, um, I, I receive his goodness and righteousness and, um, and I now stand ready to go to heaven. Is that, that Tim, is that how you heard it as well? Yeah. Pray the prayer, um, right. join the club and then, you know, get your badge and you're good to go. And I've seen that through the four spiritual laws and the bridge illustration and the Romans road. They all, they all kind of have that guilt, punishment, sacrificed faith sort of vibe to them. And, and that when you use the, the phrase justification by faith, that's the popular expression of that, correct? Yeah, um, that's 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 one way of talking about yeah the the sort of the framework the overarching framework could be on the one hand like realizing God is righteous that we've sinned that we um, then in light of that Jesus has died for our sins so that we can be forgiven right and that we then right. need to respond by faith if we trust the promises of God to be true in Jesus uh, then um, then yeah then there's a transaction that occurs and uh, we are declared right in God's presence. Dude. And those things are all true on the okay. one hand, Okay. Um, although we, we may want to nuance that a little bit. But on the other hand, um, it's it's also not what the Bible says the gospel is. Like, <laughs> so that's been the problem is that is that we've kind of created, right, um, this gospel story uh, because we want to package it as a sort of um, – uh, as a convenient thing for us. Um, but in reality, when we pay attention to what scripture says, the gospel is it looks, it has a very different shape. 
Okay, so I immediately think of like Romans 3, you know, Jesus would put forward to satisfy God's wrath. I think of, you know, Paul saying, I, I knew nothing but Jesus and him crucified. Um, so, so when you say the Bible doesn't, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm being hyperbolic kind of to, to provoke, but when you, when you say like that, that is part of the gospel, but not the whole thing, what do you, what do you mean? How, how does that relate? Because it's been presented as the whole thing. Absolutely. So I would imagine this is very disorienting to hear, oh, okay. So that's not the way it works, but it seems like there are some passages that would support that. Yeah. Yeah, and um, so yeah, I think the, the the way to kind of get right to the heart of it is that um, when Scripture talks about these things, it doesn't in fact say it's about Jesus crucified, it's about the Christ crucified, right? And mm-hmm. so we tend to slide those things together and see that we tend to think that Jesus is just a, like an alternative way of referring to Christ and that Christ means Jesus, Jesus means Christ, mm-hmm. it's the same thing, but we've evacuated that title of its meaning, right, which means the, the, the Messiah, the King, the right. one that was expected to come into rule um, over uh, Israel and that the nations then would flock to uh, Jerusalem in order to gain wisdom from this wise king who rules. Mm-hmm. So the, the proper restoration of the gospel involves a recognition that it's about the process by which Jesus was becoming king. Mm-hmm. And that really the gospel then is a declaration like Jesus has become king. Right. Um, That's the good news is that he's now become the saving king and that he provides salvation by dying a substitutionary atoning death on our behalf. So it's not a denial of the atonement. It's not a denial that he died for the sins of his people. It's a recognition that the climax of the gospel actually arrives with him. Um, being enthroned at the right hand of God in such a way that he's able to dispense the saving benefits Mm. that uh, that that attend his rule. Okay. And attend his priestly work too, as he's seated at the right hand of God. All right. So let me see if I'm I'm getting this right. That you are able to pack a whole heck of a lot in a one paragraph <laughs> answer. That is that is absolutely brilliant. Um so when Jesus speaks of the kingdom of God, right? His I mean, his earliest message is, is summarized like in Mark is repent uh, for the kingdom is at hand. Uh, the kingdom is nearby. Is this is that what Jesus means? That his his arrival through his life, ministry, death, resurrection, and his his ascension is him. That is the process of him becoming king through humiliation and then vindication. Is that yes? I, <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, yes. Uh, yeah, to, to really expand on that just very briefly, I think we see a, a, a kind of a pattern in the Gospels where where Jesus is first like identified before time even began as the Christ, right? As the King who would be sent. He's the Son uh, chosen by the Father, right, uh, to be sent in order to complete the triune mission. Um, but he's not the king yet because he doesn't rule in power yet, right? Mm-hmm. He's the Son, but he's not the Son of God in power yet. Yeah, so he's not mani- he, he's, his identity is that, but his rule hasn't manifested now over the earth yet. His, uh, yeah, his identity is the, is the pre-incarnate son, right? right. Um, he hasn't taken on human flesh yet. Um, and there's a sense in which God always rules, but that God's intention is to rule through a human. Um, and that intention to rule through a human has has not been working out properly. Like our image bearing, <laughs> our image bearing has become defaced, right, or has right. become obscured in some way. And so, right. God's intention to rule him to rule the earth um, through um, his 
his image that um, reflects his glory in, in an unmitigated way, that's, um, that's become lost. And so there's a process by which Jesus needs to attain to the kingly rule. And so he's, he's on the one hand chosen by God far in advance, but then he has to actually be anointed as the king. That's mm-hmm. when he actually properly becomes the Christ, right, is, is at his yeah. baptism. baptism yeah. Like before that, at least historically speaking, that's when he becomes the Christ, right? Whenever this is realized in history is whenever he, the spirit comes on him in his baptism. So mm-hmm. now he's chosen, but he's still not enthroned. He doesn't have, a, he doesn't have, a, he doesn't have any, any, any um, full power yet, right? He's mm-hmm. not installed at the right hand of God. So he has to go the path of the Christ cross and the path of the cross is what does lead to glory eventually as he's seated at the right hand of god oh geez okay wow so in this in this telling incarnation becomes one of the most central facets of the gospel in other words that that god um that god's rule had to be manifested through a human person so we had adam called a son of god we had israel called a son of god now we have the Christ who comes as a son of God and that that whole, cause I think of what I hear you saying is that the whole event is the gospel that we've, that we made the cross, the gospel, but you're saying the whole thing. Am I hearing you correctly in that? Yeah. I, I think that's, that's a good way to put it is it's the whole Christ event, right? The whole um, Christ event. If we, if we want to talk about what it is the gospel, like really quite specifically in the Bible, we would want to say it's the Christ event and it involves um, the father sending the son, you know, he takes on human flesh in the line of David. Uh, he dies for our sins in accordance with the scripture. So this is all a fulfillment of the old Testament patterns and prophecies, right? Mm-hmm. As he dies for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, uh, he's, he's then buried, raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And then he's seen by many witnesses. People attest to the resurrection, but that's not the end of the gospel, right? So oftentimes the gospel gets, right. uh, it's like cross. Okay. Well maybe resurrection too. Like what people tend to miss is that after he's witnessed, right? Well, what happens next? He ascends right. to the right hand of, God the Father. And this is actually of central emphasis again and again in New Testament gospel proclamations that Jesus is now seated at the right hand of God and ruling and carrying out his priestly vocation as well. Mm -hmm. So we see that enthronement as is critical to the, uh, to the whole gospel. And then the spirit is sent right, right after that. And then finally Jesus will come again. And Paul even says that final coming again of Jesus as the King and the judge, that's actually part of the gospel too. uh, Paul says in Romans two 16, Okay, so we're we're painting a, a much larger picture that's more narrative, uh, more more narratively based, not as propositional. Um, how is it that because I've I've heard the objection when when we talk about the kingdom of God that Paul preached a separate gospel? Why doesn't Paul use? And I know, of course, you deal with this, but to set this up, why doesn't Paul use kingdom of God language more? as uh as he proclaims his message yeah he does he does use it a little bit but it just doesn't seem to be his preferred diction right Mm -hmm. um as he talks about jesus as the christ constantly which is obviously to invoke um the kingdom um the kingdom idea Um, but i I would say that it's partly because jesus's proclamation is the kingdom of god is drawn near in the sense that it's emerging around him right Mm -hmm. and that he's in the process of becoming king and once jesus has been enthroned at the right hand of god well the kingdom of god has reached a certain horizon of fulfillment as god's uh, rule has now devolved onto 
um, God's rule as Jesus participates in it, right, as part of the triune God, right? But now he's a human ruling at the right hand of God, uh, that as he rules, uh, the kingdom is present wherever the spirit is functionally operative. So it's as the spirit is at work in the midst of the community and people are choosing to confess Jesus as the king and to live in light of that. Um, well, that's what it means to be part of the spirit-bounded community. So it's a, really a work of the triune God. And um, it probably has to do with, um, I think, a horizon of fulfillment being reached um, with the, the arrival of Jesus as the king. So it's just easier to declare him to be the Christ as the one who rules, um, yeah. as a way of um, of nodding to that kingdom of God language and its, and its appropriate uh, horizon of fulfillment. Tim, how does this strike you as you hear it? I'm just trying to track with it. <laughs> it's a lot. Yeah, yeah. sorry. I mean, these it's, are... a little, it's a little heady. Um, yeah. as I'm, I'm, I'm packing a lot into a short space, but ask me to unpack if there are places you want no, me to. No, I will. I think you guys are, every time I start to think of a question, you guys start to unpack that a little bit more in the next piece. So yeah, I don't want to so, interrupt the, the No, flow. no, you interrupt. Because I, I do, what, what, <clears throat> what, be, what is being said here is so important um uh, that that there's a reason why as we're recording this there's a, a brewing controversy um around uh this book and some of this content it's it's because i think people are realizing how significant it turns out to be so and I, and i keep reframing matt just to you know make sure people can track with this I know you know all of these things, and I'm quoting you back to you, which is always a horrible way to interview somebody. <laughs> um, but but for for the way it makes sense to me is that the gospel we've taken a part of the work of Christ and we've made it the whole. And what you're saying is, you no, know, biblically, when you read Paul's summaries and and other places, biblically the thing is much bigger than that, right? It's the whole, as you say, Christ event. That is salvific. It's not just that he died for my sins, but that he has risen again, ascending and sent the spirit. All of that saves, correct? It's not just the forgiveness of my sins that saves, which which means that salvation is much bigger, of course, than forgiveness of sins. Yeah. And even our incarnation, right? As we bring that in, as we, we, we think about the ways in which that dignifies, like Jesus is taking on human flesh, dignifies all of creation. And it helps point us to the final horizon of salvation, which is not just heaven, of course, but new creation, right? Uh, As incarnation, um, we see is intimately bound up in salvation as well. Yeah. Now, now there's another move that you make that, that is awesome. And that is um, the response then. See, when you frame the gospel as, hey, believe Jesus died for my sins, then the response I've been told is faith. And what faith uh, has been construed as is an inward believing, a, a mental assenting to those truths, right? I pray a prayer and I agree. And so people can say, you know, living any kind of life they want. Yeah, I believe Jesus is the son of God, no problem. What is, um, how do you understand faith in this kind of framework? Yeah, and this is probably the most, I think, important contribution that would kind of go beyond, um, you know, what, um, you know, the, the, the past generation of luminaries, you know, attempted Piper Sproul and so on and so forth would be um, to help, I think, make a correction as, um, as that faith means 
something more than just trust. It doesn't just mean trusting the promises of God. Um, and there was an, a, in a sense in which I think because uh, Christ was sort of assimilated to Jesus, right, without kind of thinking about the meaning of the title as kingly, right, um, it kind of became about like, well, you're like, it's really the whole Christ, but really it meant the whole Jesus and the whole Jesus uh, in the sense of like his atoning and priestly work right was what was the object of the promise so like really okay whenever you have like traditional salvation model it's like what you need to do is you need to have faith that god's promises in jesus are true right and but paul but paul uses that language right god's promises in jesus are yes that's absolutely right and the promises are true but that doesn't mean it's the whole gospel, right? Yeah. And I think that what what ended up happening is that faith then got aimed at believing the promises to be true. Mm-hmm. So, like, what do you need to do? Like, what does God want from you? He wants you to trust that the promises he made in Jesus are true. I'm not really thinking about the Christ royal part of that very much. Like, it might be there on the sideline, but it wasn't right. at the center. Not right? thinking about the kingship, that process That's of right. enthronement. That's right. So, not yeah, I think, about, yeah. Yeah, nothing about enthronement enough. And so I think okay. that as we circle back and we like recalibrate, well, what is the gospel? If the gospel is really about Jesus's process of becoming the saving king, right, and that he's now attained it, he is now the saving king, mm-hmm. and he's now um, dispensing his benefits as the king, what's the appropriate response to the exactly. king? Exactly. It changes, it, it, cha- it helps us to see that, that really what we're call- how we're called to respond to the gospel isn't merely trusting the promises of God, but it's to respond to the, to the king himself, right? right? And how do you respond to a king? You give allegiance. Mm-hmm. Right? You give allegiance to a king. You give loyalty to a king. And, and so actually, as we dig into this question more and we begin to look like, well, what does the word faith actually mean in the New Testament, mm-hmm. this word mm-hmm. pistis? Well, actually, when you begin looking at ancient sources outside the Bible, inside the Bible, all over the place, you discover that, hey, actually, it means loyalty all over the place. And in fact, even means allegiance. Um, And it's not the only thing that it means, but it frequently means this. And bringing those two together, I think, is the real power of the thesis, right? On the one hand, it's a royal gospel. On the other hand, it's primarily an allegiance response that saves. Right. So, So the allegiance response assumes embodiment in ways that the quote faith pray the prayer response doesn't is that correct i would say that's true um i want to be careful there because trusting the the word trust is pretty ambivalent um it it, i think it foregrounds mental things Mm -hmm. like we we tend to whenever we hear the word trust we tend to think like mostly that's something i do with my mind but trust can be embodied um Whenever we use the word belief, believe, you know, what we need to do is we need to believe Jesus' promise. Right, like, right. Well, that's, per, that's purely cognitive, and that's where yeah. that can really get in trouble. That's all mental stuff. Right. Believing. Um, right. Trusting can, is, is, I think it foregrounds the mental, but can involve the body. I think the reason allegiance is helpful is it sort of reverses that, and that's actually faithful to what the word means in mm. Scripture and outside of scripture. The word pistis was something that was understood to be a bodily doing and an externalized action was what was foregrounded in the ancient world. So you you display your pistis, you display your yeah. loyalty. Yeah. It's not it's the the what's yep. what's at the forefront of that of that idea isn't just mental but is bodily. So it kind of puts body first and mind second if we want yeah. to think about but it involves them both. Right? Where right. trust puts mind first and body may be involved maybe not. Yeah, I think I think of an analogy with the word love, uh, in the sense of love, uh, is, you know, in in uh, 
kind of Hollywood circles uh, is an emotive feeling. Love in the Bible is an active, you know, uh, place of regarding another above yourself. So love is an action word. Faith is an action word. Faith is an embodied word. So when it says like Jesus saw their faith, like that's, he's not seeing their believing, he's seeing their loyalty. He's seeing their allegiance. Is that right? Yeah, we need to be careful. Um, the word I don't want to be careful. Matt. <laughs> I know we I have just... to. I'm just what a scholar is what I do, right? I have, we have to nuance, nuance, nuance. Um, so on the one hand, like belief can mean just it can mean just cognitive stuff. Like it does mm-hmm. sometimes mean that, mm-hmm. um, but uh, and especially when it's used as a verb. When I say I believe that X, Y, or Z, right? Um, the, the 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 word group in Greek, the pistuo word group, is related to pistis. That's the verb involved in believing, and you can just have mental content that follows it mm-hmm. so it can be just a mental thing sure uh, it just believe. isn't normally yeah so um i think on the one hand we uh, faith is a good translation or even believe sometimes of pistis but not usually and and the the thing that one of the sticky issues here is that the way people think words mean things can be a little bit problematic mm-hmm. as we tend to think that there's a dictionary way of knowing how words mean and what what i mean by that is that like how well what does a word mean well i look it up in the dictionary and there's definitions one, two, three, four, five, and six, right? Um, and that I then choose the one that works best. The problem with that is that um, actually our minds don't work that way. We actually have all six definitions usually um, working mm. in the background there. And that um, we have what's called, a, um, to use technical term, a monosemic bias. Yes. We, we, we tend to... Um, we tend to have central ideas that are activated by a word group. And so usually we actually have multiple definitions in play at the same time or at least available. Mm -hmm. Um, So, so that, so whenever somebody heard the word pistis in the ancient world, on the one hand, they probably thought trust. On the other hand, they thought loyalty and they didn't actually slide those apart. They were usually both present at the same time for somebody. Right. But they've been separated for us, at least in the common vernacular. That's right. And, and this would naturally, so if, if the, the kingly gospel d- demands the response of allegiance, which seems like it would include worship, it seems like it would include baptism as a, as a bodily declaration of allegiance, um, it, it would include social relations, right, governed now Absolutely. by the king. It seems like there's no distinction then between salvation and discipleship. Um, yeah. Yeah, exactly. that's right. And, okay, and the trust is part of allegiance. Yeah, I think that, that that's exactly right. It's a, a lot of things kind of fit under the allegiance umbrella. And we're not saying that like what everyone said previously about trusting the promises are, is wrong. We're saying that actually just fits within allegiance or that allegiance uh, is like a bigger category that that captures all of that and corrects some problems and does so in a helpful way by targeting it at the royal gospel of yeah. Jesus as the saving king who brings atonement for his people. So, um, yeah, and, and um, as, you, as you kind of point out, I think that this has huge implications for discipleship. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That so follow naturally. I, go, I, go, Tim. I want to try to see if I can dum-dum this down. Um, that's for Giants fans? Here. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> for all the Giants fans out there. Uh, is Jesus's work with the disciples a proper example of this, right? Because it's like uh, that there is a call to trust and trust in the kingship and that he is proclaiming. But then there's the also you guys are going to come with me. You're going to kind of stop doing what you're doing. You're going to participate in this trust and this faith that you are speaking of. 
now you're going to journey with me and you're going to, and that trust also includes trial and error. Right. And we get lots of that with Peter or whoever that's just like, Nope, try again. Nope. Try again. (laughs) But they are, they're participating in a journey that goes forward with Jesus that does require that physical body, um, involvement in the trust process. Is that a, is that a decent example of that's that's yeah totally appropriate example a good one in fact um yes the scholars have argued along those lines i think of joel green who's written um uh, several books on luke acts um but um in one of his more recent books on luke i can't think of the title um off the top of my head uh, he argues specifically that luke is 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 narrating an embodied journey of salvation and um especially in the second half of luke right as jesus begins to journey toward jerusalem with his face set toward it Right. Um, he knows the cross looms before him and he knows that the disciples have to learn to walk the path of the cross, um, even if they can't successfully do it fully yet. Right. They need him to blaze the trail and they kind of follow in their bodily actions what he's doing. Um, yeah. But this is a path toward kingship. Right. That he's walking. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a strange kind of kingship as he's yeah. the crucified king. Right. And so they have to learn to be. Um, yeah. To be shaped into that image of the crucified king, which is all intimately bound up with their salvation. Yeah, that mm-hmm. salvation involves in the end our conformity to the image of the king. So let's exactly. <laughs> I could I would have said it exactly the same way. Not <laughs> at all. Um so <laughs> so let's let's walk through um probably the most famous evangelical if you were going to ask, hey, summarize the gospel. In the old way, it would be Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. And there are four words there that you spend lots of time on. And um, that, that, you know, uh, that are kind of central to our understanding of what the gospel is. Right? Grace, works, faith, and saved. And um, so what I what I want to what I want to do is walk through, and I don't want to fully unpack these unless uh, because I, particularly on the grace thing. Oh my goodness, you you know there we could do we could do hours of conversation on the grace thing. Um, but but if I were going to attempt to explain to a relatively new believer, okay, um, you know when Paul says for. Um, uh, it is by faith. It is by faith you are by uh, grace. Yeah, I have this one memorized. Yeah, let's, yeah, I do too. And I actually, I, not only do I have it memorized, I actually have it in front of me, so I'll read it. Uh, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, in order that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Yes. Thank you. Um. I'd love to walk through a little bit of how we would then understand these words differently. So, so um, we'll start with faith, right? Or you know what? I don't even need to ask questions. Why don't you just walk us through this and how this, how we would understand these sort of central words and this central verse under the kind of kingship um, uh, picture that you're painting. Okay, I'll do I'll do each word at a time, and then you tell me what word you want me to do next. So you said nice. faith first. Um, yeah. Uh, what if we were to understand it this way? For by grace you have been saved through allegiance, um, mm. and that we were to understand loyalty being full ground, 
foregrounded. Actually, this makes some sense in the passage as Paul goes on and says, it is the gift of God, not by works in order that no one may boast. It seems to emphasize divine action on our behalf. It, it seems to emphasize faithfulness. So mm-hmm. it actually could have in view Jesus's faithfulness for by grace, right. you've been saved through Jesus's loyalty to God uh, mm-hmm. through what he did for us. Mm-hmm. But even if it means something more like our uh, loyalty or our allegiance, um, that certainly fits in here as well. Okay, so it is by grace you've been saved through our allegiance. Let's step, let's go backward one word to saved. Yeah, the word saved, um, like the, the soteria word group in Greek just means rescue or deliverance. Um, and so, yeah, it, it presumes that there is um, some sort of plight um, that we're in. So it does uh, presuppose a larger framework of like, of, uh, of problems for humanity um, and that we are uh, not right with God and need to become right with God in some way. So certainly the reformed emphases in that direction are not wrongheaded. It, it is true that there is a human problem, a deep right. one. Uh, but the focus in the text, interestingly, is on more on collective problem. And mm-hmm. we tend to individualize that too quickly. Right. And yeah. say like what we, we tend to think the problem is that my sins stand against me and God is going to condemn me. Mm-hmm. It's really not the interest of the text. The text mm-hmm. is more interested, actually, in our collective disobedience. Mm-hmm. And, that, uh, and, and as we think about what's going on here, um, it's, it's really emphasizing the gift God gave us all in the Christ events in Christ Jesus. Yeah. So salvation, as we've said, is, is far bigger than, than simply forgiveness of sins in this accounting. Yes. Then how does grace play into that? So because of my allegiance, I am now saved, rescued into something far larger than than forgiveness, but hallelujah for that. Yeah, and let me just add something quickly. Yeah. And like for salvation, we often think of salvation from something, mm-hmm. right? And that's obviously part of it, but we also need to think of salvation for something. Mm-hmm. And when we forget to do that, like that, that it's not just about God rescuing us from hell or whatever it might be that we have in mind, but instead God rescuing us for the purpose of new creation. That's quite different, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Anyway, okay, so you're asking about grace. Yes, Um, yes. And I did it in this order. Because <laughs> uh, I wanted to do the two we've covered before you introduced grace. Yeah. Um, well, Paul Paul actually defines what he means by grace a couple of verses prior um, when Paul is talking about um, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And as Paul speaks about it in the verses prior, um, I'd have to go back and look. I don't have it in front of me, but he especially emphasizes the enthronement. Right, that we are at mm-hmm. we, um, uh, that God, even though um, we were. Um, so we were, we're apart from him collectively that nevertheless God has um, made us in some sense um, co-heirs with Christ and that we are um, seated at the right hand of God in Christ. Um, and again, this is in the King, right? Um, is the idea. And so what's emphasized in grace here seems to be the Christ events themselves uh, that really, um, when we think about um, grace, we tend to, we tend to de- we tend to make that something non-historical and we tend to make it like an abstract concept, right? Like um, for by by grace you've been saved well that just means like we didn't deserve it and god gave it to us correct um what well, does mean that but it actually might intend a specific thing god gave us when we didn't mm. deserve and what is that specific thing what's the gospel itself the christ, the christ event. events yeah Boom. the christ event yeah so really it's the christ event that god gave us the christ event it is the gift of god then um meaning um the christ event uh, the whole thing incarnation to enthronement right um is mm-hmm. what was given including Jesus' death for our sins, including uh, the resurrection, including all of that. 
Right. So I read this in a very individualized way, right? It is, well, God's grace towards me because I deserve this, but he gives me, gives me forgiveness through Christ. And I'm saved, meaning I go to heaven. And my response to this is something called faith, which is this inward disposition to believe God's promises. And we're saying, no, 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 no. That's, this is actually grounded in stuff that has happened and altered history. So that saved and grace and faith all become embodied in real time and space. Is that true? I think that's a pretty good summary. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, the grace bit then, of course, like um, part of our misunderstanding is that we don't think that um, grace is something that we could ever respond to, or we tend to think right. about it that way. That right. like, if, if we do anything with our bodies in response to it, then we're violating grace. But that's actually not what Bible teaches, not what the ancient world and not how they understood the Chorus word group. Uh, it was clearly something that demanded a response. We needed to reciprocate mm. to grace in order for grace to actually be accepted as grace. Uh, John Barclay's work in Paul and the Gift, I think, has put this on very sound footing. And uh, uh, for for people who are wanting to check that out more, yes, um, it's a pretty scholarly book. I have a kind of a condensation of of some of Barclay's work uh, in my chapter of is my chapter four, I guess, in Gospel Allegiance, mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. I talk about six different aspects of grace. The problem is we tend to just think of one or two of those aspects when it, when in reality there's something quite a bit more complicated going on, including the need for us to respond to the gift. Yes. And that, oh my goodness. So grace, the way I've understood it makes us very passive. Um, this whole, this whole way of framing the gospel makes us very passive towards discipleship, um, towards embodiment of our, you know, living. Um, but, but absolutely in grace, grace sounds like there's nothing to do except receive it. I've even said that. And what you argue in the book is no, 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 there's actually for it to become grace, there has to be a response, which then raises the question of, okay, well, how does that relate to works in the, in the Ephesians to it? If you'd keep reading to that, to that point and then go into works, that'd be, that'd be yeah. good. Um, so, uh, yeah, Paul says, it is the gift of God, not by works in order that no one may boast. Um, one of the things that has become an increased, um, scholarly preoccupation and interest is examining what specifically was meant by works. Um, Some Mm -hmm. of your listeners may be familiar with this whole discussion around the new perspective of Paul on Paul, some maybe not. Um, But one of the findings is that um, Paul sometimes abbreviated works for works of law. And then most of the time when Paul talks about um, us um, being justified by faith and not by works, we tend to abbreviate that way ourselves. But actually we, we look at, for instance, in Galatians and Paul's very clear, it's by works of law, right? And so Paul, uh, just like we do, he t- tended to abbreviate works of law and just use works. Uh, I give evidence for um, places where Paul does this in gospel allegiance. Um, and uh, so if we understand it that way, this passage makes a lot of sense as that it, it, it connects to ethnic boasting and to Jewish possession of works of the Torah, mosaic works of the law like circumcision. Right. Um, and so he says that we're, it is the gift of God and it's not by works. And really that's an abbreviation um, Paul uses probably for works of Torah. Um, we know this because Paul, right after this passage, says, therefore, and then goes on and, um, and, and has some explanations of circumcision and how, in fact, the dividing wall that separated Jew and Gentile has now been abolished in Christ. Um, and, that, uh, and that this all connects then to his argument about um, salvation being by, um, uh, through faith and not, um, and not by uh, works. Uh, 
So that makes good sense if Paul sees works there as an abbreviation for works of law like circumcision, right? right? There's a contextual case that's strong for it. Mm -hmm. Which means then that when he says at, at the end of 10 that we're saved for works, for good works, that he's not contradicting himself. That's right. Yes. So the when he says that we're we're saved for good works, right? Yes, that we we certainly respond with allegiance to Jesus. We have good works to do in Jesus. Those good works aren't dangerous for our salvation or a problem for us. Um, it's in fact the problem is whenever we actually pursue works of Torah as an alternative system of salvation, right? That we we prop that up and we say, no, actually, this is, um, in fact, um, how we're saved is by these works of Torah um, mm-hmm. that are um, a, uh, a system of legal performance and of rule keeping uh, that, um, that are in place. And that's really something that um, uh, gives us a special status as God's people. And Paul says, no way. Uh, that's all been abolished in Christ. Um, and that, uh, in fact, we're not saved by works of Torah in that kind of way. Um, yeah. But we still do good works. Yeah. And so my last question is around that. Um, you argue works form the basis of some of the judgment we undergo um, when Christ returns. And, um, and, and obviously the, the, the previous formulations of gospel all raise the questions about, you know, are you saved always once you've prayed the prayer or not? Um, how in the, in the loyalty allegiance way of understanding things is salvation given? Can it be taken away? When Paul talks about persevering to the end, is this what he means? Uh, what about those people that, you know, prayed a prayer one time when they were six and meant it as far as they could, but then have done, you know, have nothing to do with Jesus until then? Yeah. Anything you want to riff on in that, I think would be interesting for our, for our audience. Sure. Yeah. I think that what's at stake here is a confusion over some um, sort of group and individual categories. And it's certainly true that we're saved because um, what it means to be saved is to confess Jesus as the king. Uh, this mm-hmm. is uh, what, in fact, constitutes the church, and, and the Holy Spirit is given in conjunction with that. So if we confess Jesus as the Christ, the Holy Spirit, you know, and confess that as a summation of the gospel, right, mm-hmm. the true gospel, uh, then, in fact, the Holy Spirit is given, and then we then participate in the community. So we have to realize that the saved community exists before we do, right, and that mm-hmm. we then are, are being um, when we're given the spirit, the spirit um, is something that envelops us into that community. Um, the metaphors for spirit actually are almost all liquid or fluid metaphors in mm-hmm. scripture, which is interesting. Right. And I think the idea that we want to think of here is that the, uh, that fluid um, permeates everyone who's part of the in Christ family, the Holy Spirit fluid. It's personal. It is a person. Right. But nevertheless, it's something that's an enveloping fluid or we're invited to think of it that way in scripture language of outpouring of the spirit and of uh, and so on and so forth so really uh, to be to, to what does it mean to get saved it means that we confess jesus is the lord and that we then are brought into that holy spirit community where the spirit envelops us mm-hmm. so questions about whether or not we can be saved have to do with could we could we ever leave that community uh, could we ever stop being part of that holy spirit permeated community hmm. and 
and, um, and well, yeah well this is obviously like a really deeply controversial topic um and yes. I, i'm still i'm still working on this okay. um but my 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 position that i would that I, it, it's certainly not in print in gospel allegiance but it certainly is probably hinted at would be that yes we can leave that community decisively mm. and i think that we have all kinds of new testament evidence that would support the idea that we can cease to confess jesus as lord and uh and leave the holy spirit community oh well thank you for for being willing to end on that that's great and it raises so many other good questions for further study so um matt would you tell us just briefly where uh about your podcast where to find you online i'm sure there are folks that would love to find out more about all this yeah so um I write under the name, you know, Matthew Bates, um, and uh, uh, these books, Gospel Allegiance, Salvation by Allegiance Alone, you can find on my personal website, then MatthewWBates.com, and links to my podcast. Um, the podcast is called On Script, uh, and I co-founded it and co-hosted along with um, some six other scholars. So it's sort of a big operation, um, and we put out a lot of content, I think a lot of good, high-quality content. And we, we tend to host um, other, other Bible scholars and other professional theologians and interview them about their books it tends to be what we do um so it, it can be a, a kind of higher level conversation sometimes but we always try to keep in mind you know the educated listener um who doesn't have a technical background and all this stuff yeah. so um it's a fun it's a fun time i love doing it <laughs> oh that is awesome and and then um matthew w bates also is his twitter handle and you can find him on the tweets tim any last thoughts my friend oh no i have about a hundred questions that's what i'm <laughs> I don't know that uh, we have the time or the space for that. Oh, I think you are not alone. So, Matt, we're going to honor your time and just say thank you. Thanks for your scholarship. Thanks for taking some time to join us today. Thanks for stirring up a whole bunch of stuff. And um, looking forward to what you have in the future. So, appreciate your time. Hope you and your family stay safe. Hey, thanks, Mike. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, Matt. Thank you for listening to this conversation. The Vox Podcast is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that is supported by listeners like yourself. If you'd like to partner with us, you can do so at patreon.com backslash Vox Podcast. You can also engage with the hosts on social media at facebook.com backslash Vox Podcast. On Instagram, at Fox Podcast, and on Twitter, at Mike Erie. Thank you for walking this road with us.